we had lines opening day. We had lines for like way down the road um, for people to come see what was going on. We also had a bit of mystery in it. Not not everybody knew exactly um, what it was going to be or what it was going to look like. We gave it an identity as if it was that that friend you have that bells you out and helps you when you're in a tough spot. We we made it feel like that, and we did. And we created these women's groups, and, and we had a lot of people buying, and and it became a success. Now, as you might guess, where we failed is we knew nothing about supply chain or buying, or that we could have taken stuff on consignment and not buy it up front and let it sit on shelves. We had employee issues. We had a a local mob come and hold up our store with at gunpoint for three days with our employees hostage in the building unless we paid a bribe. And remember, I was not going to pay bribe under no circumstances. So we had to, so we had all sorts of crazy things happen. Welcome to the Founders Pod. Our guest today is Adam Anderson, the owner of Reach, an online product advertising firm. Adam's had an incredible experience, from medical sales to a chain of convenience stores in Peru and everything in between. Adam has started many businesses and has had success all over the world. Join us as we explore the ups and downs of Adam's life and learn the wisdom that he imparts from the incredible journey thus far. The Founders Podcast. Listen to the stories of how everyday extraordinary people start amazing businesses. Hear how they overcome the odds and find success in the entrepreneurial world. The up and down, the good and the bad, and everything in between. And now, your hosts, Jordan Hansen and Brandon Minard. You have a fascinating story, a lot of different things you've worked on, and I'm really excited to learn more about them. Currently, though, Adam, you are working doing Amazon wholesaling. Is that correct? Accurately? Yeah. And just mm-hmm. a quickly explain, we're trying to do a better job of illustrating what our guests do professionally. So if you could just take like a minute or two just to kind of summarize, let's say you're telling um, my mom what you do for a living. Uh, how would you explain that? Okay, we basically take brands that are selling on Amazon and aren't winning. They're losing market share. They've got problems. They're pulling their hair out. And we come in and we help them get control of, of their own brand and their own products on Amazon. And we start, we start that by helping them um, fix some, some quick problems. And when they get to a certain point to where they're doing well, we invest in them by buying their inventory and reselling it so that our incentives are tied. In other words, we only make money if they make money. So, so we find brands that, that need help and get in and start selling their product and wholesaling their product. We buy it wholesale and we sell it retail on Amazon and ultimately increase their market share and improve their, their brand experience on Amazon. Awesome. That was great. That really does a really good job of explaining it to us. Yeah, Adam. So are you from the Treasure Valley? Are you from, did you grow up in Boise or in Idaho? I did. I grew up here from the time I was two. And I went to uh, Lowell Scott Middle School and Centennial High School. And, and then just moved back here in 2011. Gotcha. So I want to go through your upbringing a little bit. And I'd love to talk about your family, your parents growing up when you were a kid and you were going to Lowell Scott, uh, locally known as local snot from what I remember. That's right. That's that's right. right. Eagle middle school. That's how we were. That's, that's, that's what we called it. Yeah. So <laughs> when you were growing up, what did your parents do? Um, my dad sold, uh, clothing for Farah. It's a, it was a, like they sold dress clothing for men. And then he, um, quit so he wouldn't have to travel so much. 
and took a job selling janitorial supplies here in, in the area. Gotcha. Did your mom My mom was a stay-at-home mom, but she also uh, managed a dentist office over uh, across from St. Al's on, on Curtis. So she started to do that when we got a little older and managed that dentist office until, oh, about five years ago. Gotcha. And do you have very many siblings? Yeah, there's four of us, or five of us. There's four siblings. I have four siblings. I'm the third of five. So you're the middle child. I am. Gotcha. So question. So what I want to know, growing up, did your dad give you any direction on what he thought you should do or what he thought you should be when you got out of college or when you were ready for your career? <laughs> That's a good question. Now, my parents, my parents were really good at being just the right amount of involved. They always were. And so they didn't really set expectations for career, but I was always good at math. And so of course they wanted to me, me to be a doctor or an engineer. So I just pretty much thought, well, I'll be a doctor. Um, and then I, I spent some time, I, I served an LDS mission in uh, Peru and I spent a couple of weeks translating for doctors. And after spending two weeks, rotating around working with different doctors, I realized, I don't think I want to do this. I'm just doing this because um, that seemed like a good idea. And then I, I, I looked into engineering because, again, I was good at math. But it took me a while to kind of, and actually it wasn't until, you know, I got into my career a little bit that I realized what I like to do, what I'm good at, and what I want to do. So as you were growing up, the jobs that you had did you have a clear vision of say, okay, I want to work in an engineering firm or I wanted to work for a large hospital or I look at my dad and I see that he's traveling around and I thought, oh, I wanted to do my own thing. Did you ever have those thoughts? No, I actually, I didn't, to be honest, I didn't think about it much at all. In fact, I just, I mean, my dad worked me like crazy. I was always like cleaning daycares at night or gas stations or I mean, I was, we were always doing odd jobs and working a ton. And so he worked me hard and, but I didn't ever, I didn't ever really have any idea what I wanted to do. I never thought I'm going to be an entrepreneur, not as a kid or even as a teenager. I just kind of lived life and had fun and didn't think much mm -hmm. about my future career until, until honestly, I, uh, until I was in Peru thinking about it. I think that's interesting because your mom, you know, your parents are like, oh, doctor might be good for you because you're good at math. And then you were, you're kind of lucky to have a chance like shadowing doctors when you were on the mission. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I guess I, you know, I thought kind of about what I want to do, but my, you know, my dream was to own a ski resort or a ski company someday because I'm a big skier. And so that was the only, like, you know, that was the only thing I really thought about. And I wasn't sure if that was realistic, but I was like, yeah, someday I'll, I'll own my own ski something. That was as much of any entrepreneurial idea I had at the time. But again, very immature. And I, I just thought I'll figure it out when I get to college. Where was the ski company going to go? Like a ski apparel or ski equipment? or like uh, He wants actual... to ski. He has to be a, has to be a mountain. I, I didn't care. I just wanted to be... <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought it would be cool to make my own skis. I, I didn't yeah. think at all about what that would entail or what that meant, but you know, just the dreams of whatever your hobby is, you want to somehow make money doing it. Yeah. That type of thing. So then you came back from Peru and you went to college? Yeah. Uh huh. And where did you go to college at? I went to Rick's College at the time, BYU Idaho now, and then went to BYU in Provo. And so your major, was that in mathematics and some statistics or something similar? Yeah, yeah it started out pre-med classes, you know, just taking all of the science and math classes. And then I switched to engineering. I thought, okay, well, I'll be an engineer. And after a couple of semesters of those classes, I looked around. I thought, I am not an engineer. I don't fit here. Um, I, it just didn't seem like the right course. So I jumped to finance and I, I was never worried. I was never like, I've got to figure this out. I didn't feel pressure, but then I changed my major at BYU to finance 
And that's when I started to think one thing I, I realized as I worked with leaders and, and people that um, like my, my mission president was a, was a billionaire and he taught us a few things. And as I, as I worked with him and worked with adults and as a 20 year old kid or a 21 year old, a 19 year old kid, as I was giving counsel to people that were successful and I realized, Oh, you know, there's inherent value in who I am and how I think. I don't, if, 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 if this guy can be a billionaire, if this guy can do this, if this guy can do this, well, I can do that. Like, we're not all that different. Anybody can kind of do anything if you just decide to and make a plan for it. So that's how I started to think. And so I, I went into engineering because I had to have a major, and then I switched to finance. But in my head, I always thought, you know what? I'm going to decide what I want to do. And then I'm going to go do it on my own. And so by the time I was done with college, I didn't, I didn't interview for, you know, I got done with, with school at BYU and I, I didn't interview for any of the firms that were coming to the school. I just realized I was going to go at that point. I decided I was going to go find a small company and help grow it or start my own thing. I didn't know what it was. I just knew that's what I was going to do. Now, were you married at the time? I, I was the last year of college. I got married um, the summer before my last, my last year. And, and how did your wife? But I'd already you? decided this. How did she feel about that? I'll say, so that was part of the agreement when you got married. Like, hey, by the way, I'm not going to go get a normal job. I am going to either start my own business. Was she like, no problem, let's do that? Or was she, did she have fears about that? No, that's, that's one of the amazing things about her and the fact that of all the people in the world, she married me because no matter what I've done in life, she just trusts me. She just believes it will be okay. And, and part of that comes from, in college, I did the whole alarm cell thing. And I struggled with that because I, I didn't like the industry for a lot of reasons I won't go into. But I realized there too that, that you can be successful and make money and you don't have to have age or experience. That, I've learned now that that helps a ton. I mean, you have to learn and you have to learn sometimes the hard way. But I, I was just at that point, I was confident that I could, if I, if I put my mind to it and if I had a plan, I really believed in planning. I believed I could design or plan out anything that I wanted to do. Like, it's kind of like the greatest showman. We saw that. And I'm like, that's how I think. And that, and then there's that song tightrope where, where the wife's like, I'll walk the tightrope with you. Even if we fall, like, that's my wife. Like, I just had this idea that, that anyone, not because I was special or smart or anything, I just felt like anyone, if they sit down and make a plan and they follow it, they'll, they can produce or design what they want their future to be. I really like believe that to my core. And I think that came from some things my dad taught me when I was younger. Um, I think it came from finding success as a missionary and finding confidence for kind of the first time in my life. And it came from just being around people that were successful and saying, hey, we're not that different. It's about mindset and making decisions and deciding to do something as much as anything. What was your main plan? Well, so I, ending college, I, I didn't have, I wasn't sure yet. So I was, I was figuring it out and I thought, okay, what do, I, what do I want to do? And I got a call from someone, a friend of ours, asking me to be a medical uh, sales rep. And I just graduated. And I was, I was figuring out what I wanted to do. Um, I was kind of creating my plan. And I get this call, and it was out of left field, and I don't really like to do sales. And I was like, I don't want to do that. And long story short, through a series of events and, and little miracles and prayers and things, I realized that's what I needed to do. So we packed up from... We were in Colorado at the time. We graduated, moved to Colorado. We packed up and moved to Kansas. And remember, I'm a skier, and my life plan is to do something in skiing. And uh, but we moved to Kansas, and I took a job selling um, medical devices. And so, and that was. I mean, I, this phone call. Yeah. Can you? Well, I don't understand. So you're just like there in Colorado, just doing something. I just graduated. Just graduated. I had literally just graduated. We moved. And while I was figuring out, I was working for my father-in-law. He was a realtor. Gotcha. And he was like, you should do real estate. And I was just like, 
yeah, I, yeah, I didn't come out of college with a solid plan. I, um, I was still figuring things out and I, and so my plan was, okay, I'm going to work with my father-in-law doing real estate while I figure out what I really want to do. I see. So that's kind of cool. I like that you didn't, uh, I would have probably said I need something because I'm scared if I don't. So I, I like that you weren't worried about it. You're like, I'm going to work this out and I'm fine with this temporary job with my father-in-law until I figure something else out. But then you got the phone call from just yeah. some person like who uh, he was a friend of ours uh, okay. and he we you know he was a friend of ours in colorado and his name was james dean just kind of a, a cool <laughs> side note but he uh he was a great guy and i respected him a lot and he wanted me to come work with his company and i was like oh, i'm not doing that but once again there's a, a kind of a cool story behind it but but we ended up going there and and running a territory and then that led to me being the national sales trainer for the company and i just kind of i was kind of an entrepreneur in the sense that i still own my own company i was an independent contractor and i had my territory and it was fun for me to figure out how to produce more out of that territory than it had ever been produced and then to figure out a way to do it different than everyone had done it i always liked doing that i was like trying to figure out well, there's got to be a better way to do this and so I did that there and then trained the rest of the territory managers for the company on how to do what I'd done in my territory. And anyway, at that point, um, one of the guys that I had hired on, um, had an idea to start a business. And that's, that's when I really started. That's when we started launching into doing our own thing. Um, and I can go more into that, but, how long were you at your medical sales position? I was there for about, oh, it would have been five years. Was there ever a time where you were working Four. for that company? Was there ever a time when you were working for that company and you said, I can do this the rest of my life? No. So no. It, was all, it was always pretty clear to you that you thought this job is great. I mean, what, what was the main thing you learned from working with that company? Well, what I, what, that's a good question. The main thing I learned was, I don't, I didn't know it at the time, but I learned how to, I learned how to sell and how to make things easier for customers. So, so for example, we, there was a standard way everybody did things. And if you followed that method, you would do okay. You do well. But I was just a natural, maybe this is where the math comes in. I was just a natural problem solver. And so, and, and I was always kind of like questioning why people did stuff the way they did because my dad would always have me, I felt like do things the hardest way possible. Now I don't know if that's true, <laughs> but I was always like, dad, we had this, this above ground swimming pool with this deck we built around it and rocks and leaves that would blow in it in the fall. And he would have me pick out the leaves one by one out of these, this rock, this kind of rock thing around our pool. And I was like, this has got to be the word. There's got to be a machine that can be built. There's got to be something we could buy. But we were very frugal, so we wouldn't buy like a leaf blower, but there's got to be some way to do this differently. And so when I was, that's kind of how I would always think about things. And so when I was in the medical sales role, I thought this doesn't seem to make sense. The doctor doesn't care about the device we're selling. It's all like all the others, the competitors. He cares about doing less paperwork. And so I had this like, aha, as I'm working with them. And I'm like, oh, and by the way, we're, we're marketing to the wrong doctors. This is for, this device was for pain control. And we're going to this set of doctors. Here's which doctor sees the most patients in pain. Well, it's a family practitioner and it's usually back pain. And so I, I just kind of learned that I learned how to find a, a target audience, how to find what's important to them and then talk about that. So while everyone else in, in the company and the competitors companies were talking about the technicalities of their device and the science behind it and why it worked, I would merely go in and say, Hey, if you just have to, I filled out this sheet for you. If you can just sign it and fill in this, there's parts you can't legally, like, like I can't write in certain things. 
but I made it as easy as possible for that doctor to do the paperwork. And, and so in my mind, and then I only sold the one device that made us the most money and salespeople figured this out pretty quick, but I didn't know that these were, no one taught me that I, I didn't learn. No one taught me. I didn't read a book about sales. I just was thinking, how do we make this better? And so I started doing that and things started working differently. And so then I started training the rest of the company on it. And in my mind, that's where my vision started to take hold is, okay, I can do what I want to do in this company. And so I went and pitched to the owner that the owner make me, uh, puts me over the whole nation and I will teach everyone and I will grow their sales. And I want a percentage of whatever growth I create in the company. And so that was, and I, and I realized that I had my own business and I was contracted to work with them, but I didn't limit myself at, well, I'm just going to be a territory manager. In my mind, I thought I found something that works and I want to scale it. And if I scale it, I want to be paid on what I produce. And that was kind of always the mentality I had. I still have it. I, I never wanted anything but hundred percent commission because I, I believed I could figure it out. So I wanted to be paid on what I, I produced. And I thought if I can produce for you an extra $20 million a, uh, a year in sales, then I think I should get, you can have most of it, but I want part of it. And so that's when I started to think, I don't want to build something for someone else. I'm okay if I make them successful. I don't mind being second in command or the wingman or even fifth or sixth in command. I just want to make as big of an impact as I can. If I have something that works, I want to scale it and I want to make a percentage of what I've created. And from there on, that was always my, my mentality. I didn't want to create something that someone else benefited from. And I'm, I'm, I'm willing to and happy to do the work to earn whatever I have to, to earn to, to make that worth it to the person. Did he say yes? <laughs> I got a call from the guy that hired me who was the national sales guy. I wasn't oh. trying to take his job. I was, uh. I was proposing a different job. And I got put in my place. And oh, I was really? very surprised. Oh yeah, I I got I got put in my place. Like how how dare you go around me? And, and I said, well, I own my own business, and you've hired my business. And I went to the business owner of the business that hired me. And I'm sorry, I wasn't trying to go around you. That's at that moment though, I decided right then, the this person doesn't want me to succeed at his expense, at him not. And and I said, that's it. I'm doing my own thing. So. We started our own medical device company. That's what some and, guy that you had hired, it, right? You said that that was a guy you had hired, and you had started mm -hmm. doing the similar thing with him. Yeah, I thought, well, this can't be too hard. I think the hardest part I figured out, which is selling it, and again, naive, but but it it took a lot of work, but it it wasn't that hard. We figured out how to source things, how to source the devices. We figured out um, how to set up insurance. We you know, just again, I always had this thought, well, it can't be that hard. Anybody can do anything. That's kind of my thought. I mean, some things you, you can't go do heart surgery if you haven't been to medical school. But in the business world, you got to learn stuff somehow. But a lot of it's just doing it and learning um, by trying. And sometimes a harder way to learn, but that's how I went about it. And that's, and we started that. And then we started another business um, with another guy I worked with at the same time. And this is where I started to feel my way out. And I'm like, I could go down this medical device route and have my own medical device business. But I also have this bigger purpose um, where I had a friend from Peru call me and he said, I've got the craziest thing. I've got this little tienda out of my house, poorest part of Peru, right? And if anyone's been to South America, they have garages, but they don't often have cars. So they turn that garage into a little store, a tienda. And they sell to the neighbors cookies and eggs. And, and that's how the poorer part of the population buys a lot of their goods when they need things fast. It's like a convenience store um, every few houses. But he was somehow getting people to come from like a mile away, which on foot, that's a long walk to buy something from a little store when you pass 30 on the way. And he told me he was doing this and I was fascinated by it. I'm doing the medical device thing. I'm listening to my friend in Peru and I'm fascinated that someone's walking a mile 
to buy from him and passing up 20 other stores. And I dig into it. And he explains to me that in Peru, there's like 10 layers of middlemen from the manufacturer to these little stores. And he just cut out a few of them and could sell for cheaper. And so again, my brain instantly was like, what if you could scale this? So, so it, it was the same as the medical device thing. I saw a way to do it better. And I thought, how do you scale it? There's a business there. And so we started working with him to see if we could build a little mini market in poor neighborhoods in Peru. And while I was doing this medical device thing, and, and I got passionate about that because in my mind, I had this vision of what if I could cut the, I realized later it's kind of a Walmart type idea, but what if I could cut the costs? Because to those families, it was you make what you make for the day and then you buy what, whatever money you have. I mean, you're li literally living day to day. And I'm like, if you could save them $5 a day, that's huge. Why are there so many middlemen? And so we started playing with it. And one thing led to another, and we ended up building a, a convenience store in one of the poorest neighborhoods in the, in the middle of, of a city in Peru, a suburb of Lima. And we, um, we built this store and there's a ton of things I learned, a ton of cool successes, a ton of failures, but we started building this simultaneously. And ultimately I left the, I left the uh, medical device company behind because I was passionate and loved this idea. I had this like vision and dream that if I put these in all the poor neighborhoods in Peru and we made enough profit, we could give back and beautify and grow Peru financially from the center out. Like I had this vision of this poor neighborhood has a, a really nice um, little mini market in the middle of it. The employees are paid fairly. We would follow just the rules of integrity and in everything we did. We wouldn't pay bribes. We would do all these things right. And we would take the money and beautify and hire more people and start at the poorest areas and just grow out. And I had this big vision and I was, heck, I was like 27. And I, uh, somehow we raised a million dollars and got funding to do this crazy idea. I'd never run a grocery store, never done anything in Peru. And we opened up a little mini market and started to have success. And I just got so passionate about that idea. It, it meant more to me that I, I left the medical device thing behind. And, and again, there's a lot, a lot of hurt and pain and hard things and trials in all of this, but that's the high level story. And we, we started to build that business. So do you think that, uh, I'm curious about your feelings about, um, the, the weights between financial success and also doing good. Um, it sounds like it was a large part of it was motivated by a good cause. Um, and while it could be financially viable, I mean, if you compare them, what do you think was the more financially viable option there between the two? <laughs> well, I thought scale. At that, at that stage of my life, I thought scale. And I thought the, the grocery store thing was higher risk, but higher return for sure. I thought this is a, if you could do that in Peru, you could do it in India, you could do it in all of these third world countries. And, and so I thought this, this is an idea. And as we pitched it to people that kind of knew the business, they're like, that, this is actually kind of brilliant. So we had some validation that it was a good idea. And I thought that's a way bigger opportunity than medical device, but financially it wasn't. In fact, what I did is I, I had my partner quit his job and I, I funded, cause you get paid. I made a good living right out of college as a medical device rep. And so I paid, I funded both of our families while he worked full time on it. This is the one um, in Peru, right? The partner we, in Peru? No, we okay. had another partner here. We were mission companions. So there were three of us. Okay. And, and so I, my partner quit his job and I funded both families with my income while he did most of the work. But, but, but back to your question, which motivated me more, there was a financial motivation. Um, but that's never really done it for me. I like the idea of growing something and making something big. I like the idea of showing people that you can do anything and that there's no limits, but it wasn't about the actual money. It was about what it could become.
And so there was the size of what it could become motivated me. But what, what I've realized as I've done other things throughout life is I don't get really passionate unless there's a, a, a bigger cause. And that hasn't always been an opportunity for me. In fact, since then, I haven't had that opportunity where I'm really passionate about the cause. And, uh, and I think that's always a struggle when you're not. But, yeah. So what, what do you mean when you say we started having success? Well, we had, um, we just, again, we'd never done it before. And so we had some outside of the box ideas. Like, I think there's a lot of value in that, by the way. Um, later on in life, I, I did, I ended up doing consulting for big companies and I would always try to bring in people that knew as, so uh, this is a bit of a tangent, but it, I'll come back to the point. I, I did uh, later on in life, I did consulting for larger companies and we would restructure companies and, and do strategy. And I'd often like to bring in someone brand new to the business with the executives or someone that wasn't in the regular conversations to throw some new ideas in. I found a lot of value in people that supposedly didn't know anything about the topic. Um, and I would always, I always like to throw in people that don't know anything about the topic into the, into the mix when we're, we're making plans and strategies. And so coming from a place where we didn't know anything about grocery stores, again, we made a lot of mistakes, but we also had some novel ideas. And so one of the successes we had is we, we brought on a third partner that, that worked in an ad agency and, and was really smart in terms of marketing. But we came up with some really cool ideas that no one had ever done in a grocery store. In Peru, we realized that most of a, a woman's a mother's day was spent preparing meals. They bought the chicken, they killed the chicken, they plucked the chicken, they cooked the chicken. It, like what takes no time here was a major part of their day. And we thought, okay, this has a huge impact on their day. How do we help them with their day, not just be a mini market? And so we started talking to the ladies in this neighborhood and they loved being a part of it so much that they start formed a little group with one of our employees. It wasn't our idea necessarily. They formed this little group and they would meet weekly to discuss how the grocery store should be built. And then or the little mini market. And then we had someone had an idea. I don't know who it was, but that we should go to, we should divide the neighborhood into sectors and we went what we thought was a realistic walking distance from where the store would be. And we interviewed, we had different groups and we gave them identities. We had the strawberry group and the avocado group. We gave, named them after fruits and vegetables. And we gave them little cards, like shopper cards. And they were part of this group. And they would give us ideas. This was before we ever had the store. They would give us ideas on how to make the store better for them. They got so invested that by the time we opened, all the women in the neighborhood felt like they owned the store. And so that was a huge win. We had lines opening day. We had lines for like way down the road um, for people to come see what was going on. We also had a bit of mystery in it. Not, not everybody knew exactly um, what it was going to be or what it was going to look like. We gave it an identity as if it was that that friend you have that bells you out and helps you when you're in a tough spot. We, we made it feel like that and we did, and we created these women's groups and, and we had a lot of people buying and, and it became a success. Now, as you might guess, where we failed is we knew nothing about supply chains or buying or that we could have taken stuff on consignment and not buy it up front and let it sit on shelves. We had employee issues. We had a, a local mob come and hold up our store with at gunpoint for three days with our employees hostage in the building, unless we paid a bribe. And remember I was not going to pay a bribe under no circumstances. So we had to, so we had all sorts of crazy things happen. Some that were our fault, some that weren't. And operationally, we didn't know how to run a grocery store and we had lots of issues, but on the marketing side, it, it's a success story for a, for a marketing book. And, and so what I found in all the ventures and the different things we've done in life is because I, I dove into things sometimes without knowing what I'm doing, we have a lot of good ideas and, 
and there's also a lot of pain that would be avoided from experience or having the right team or, or some, some basic knowledge on how to do things. Um, how is yeah, so we, we had, to, yeah. I was gonna say, I mean, this is how many years does this span? Like three, five years? How long were you working on this? So we started that in 2007. Um, and, and then, uh, it was late 2006. And then in, in 2009, we ended up having to close shop because our investors were in real estate. Most of their fortune came from real estate. And in 2008, they lose, or they lost half their fortune and the money dried up for us. And so we had to close shop because we weren't, we were making a profit, but it wasn't enough to really scale and keep it going. So what were your feelings during this time? I mean, did you feel like optimistic pretty much the whole time until that very end, even with these things going up and down? Or was it a lot of like up, like, yes, we're the best. And then down like, oh, this is the worst thing ever. Well, it seems like every business I've always done, it's kind of the same. I'm always very optimistic because I see what can be and I believe we can do it. And there's the variables that you're aware of. And then there's the unknown variables that you never account for unless you're doing something you, you know, like medical devices, I kind of knew what I was in for. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, it was a roller coaster constantly, but I always knew we always could problem solve our way through it. And I was always optimistic. In fact, one of my problems was somewhere in life. I, one of my core values is I don't, I don't like to give up. This is a case where I probably should have earlier, but I was always optimistic. And even like at the end, I thought, well, maybe I can fund this. There's got to be a way. Maybe if I can borrow some money, I can keep this thing going long enough and I can make this happen. And so as it was, as we were, you know, we were making just a few thousand dollars profit a month. And, and I wasn't paying, um, we weren't paying ourselves what we need to earn, right? We were working for pennies at the time. And we realized there wasn't enough profit to pay ourselves into we couldn't burn through any more of my savings. And I was only 27, so I didn't have a ton of savings. But again, I'd made good money before, so I had some money, but I didn't have enough to float it. I held on to the bitter end, but we just didn't, we weren't making enough and we needed to build three more stores to make it make enough. And we, again, this was 2008, and though though we weren't directly impacted by the the crash, our, our source of money was, and we just didn't have any funding. And so, so it was, I felt like I couldn't believe it was dying. And I couldn't believe there was nothing I could do about it. And it was heartbreaking. And it was a really hard time in life to lose that because it was working. Like the idea was good and it was working and we knew how to tweak it. So it was more profitable the next go around. And we, we knew what to do and we couldn't get the funding to finish it out. And so to leave that behind and to close shop on that was was really hard. Um, and it took me a few years to recover from that, um, both financially, because I did end up taking out a loan that I took a few years to pay back. And uh, and emotionally, it, it took some wind out of my sails. Did you pay the bribe? I <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't in Peru. (laughs) My partner was, and all he told me was our architect, we were, we were, um, we were just about done with the building. So our architect was overseeing the building. He was like the GC on the project. And he said, he somehow took care of it. He knows some people. He took care of it. I don't know what, (laughs) I don't know what happened and I didn't ask, but, um, but I, I did learn. I mean, there were some things we had that we realized we needed political allies. And it was it was crazy. We there were a lot of stories, but I don't know if the architect paid a bribe. It didn't come out of our pocket. I don't know how it worked. Took but care of it in quotes. Yeah. There. I took care of it. Adam. It's yeah. taken care. Of. No one no one was killed. Yeah. <laughs> that you know of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Would Would you do that again? Absolutely. Would you? Now, well, is your question, yeah, is you your question would you go back? And, no, like, no, no, no. Like going right forward? now, right now, if you could start a grocery chain or a mini market in Peru or Argentina or Brazil, would you do it? 
Well, see, that's an interesting question because I, I could do it, right? Like I can. Right. Like I, I, I don't believe there's any reason I couldn't go do it. So the real question is why haven't I? And, uh, and, and I, you know, there's a lot of practical reasons. Um, but if I were at an, a juncture where I was ready to do move on to the next thing, and I sat down and created a plan and thought it was viable. I would love to do that again. I, yeah. I would love to do, I would love to do, I like doing things that are crazy and risky. I think I'm not your typical entrepreneur in that I don't have good ideas. Like I don't, like my son's an entrepreneur. The kid comes up with ideas and, and businesses and things all the time. I've never been like that. I have friends like that. Most entrepreneurs I know are like that. I don't have ideas. But what I, when I see an idea and I think it's a big one, I'm the one that pushes the entrepreneur to do it. I'm like, you should do this. They're like, this is risky. I'm like, eh, it'll be okay. So I get, I'm a, I, I guess in my mind, for me, the craziness and the risk of something is the fun part. Now, it's not fun when you're in it and your store's being held up and you don't know if you're going to lose your building that you just spent someone's money on. Like, it's not always fun in the moment, but... But I was always, I'm always attracted to the crazy ideas, especially if it's almost like, you know, if I can see a path where it works and it makes sense, but it seems a little, a little crazy, it just makes it more fun for me. I, and so at the, at the core, I'm an opportunist that's okay taking big risks. And because, because it's, it, it's, it makes it fun. Yeah. That's interesting. So then what brought you to, yeah. so were, were you still in Kansas when you were doing the mini market? Uh, yeah. And then after it failed, we, we moved in with my in-laws in Colorado and licked my wounds. And we, uh, we took the marketing ideas we had and we started a little branding firm and, and with the, with the partner that had come from the advertising world and we said, we can apply some of the principles we learned for other small businesses and give them the success we had where we had success. I wouldn't go and consult someone on, uh, on grocery store purchasing, you know, <laughs> product purchasing for grocery stores. That, but where we had success, we started doing that and built that business. And it paid the bills for a while. And then with the 2008 crash, um, people started using less and less marketing dollars and that's the first thing that was chopped and and long story short we uh we had a branding firm that paid the bills for a while and we did well but then we connected with our initial investor from the peruvian business and he went in and restructured companies he'd uh he would go into major organizations and, and restructure their, their organization and do their strategy. And we started partnering with his company on some of their projects. And we started to bring what we learned about marketing into managing change in an organization, um, doing change management and marketing internally changes that were going to happen to a company. Um, and, that is where I found what I really love to do as a technician in terms of like, what work do I love? And I got into this company um, called Align Org Solutions and that he was our, again, the owner was our, one of our big investors and he took us under his, he took me under his wing and just mentored me and I became his apprentice and, and my partner and I that had the branding business, we took some of the principles we'd use for branding now and that we learned in Peru and we applied them to change management when an organization was restructuring themselves. And so anyway, it's, it's a weird, interesting path, but you see, we took what we learned from the one business, applied it to another business. And then we found another opportunity to apply those learnings in a different way to a new business. And that's where we really found our stride and really helped grow that business. And then I um, started leading, um, after a couple of years of learning the craft of restructuring businesses and, and doing strategies I, and change management, I started leading those projects and, and helped run that company. Sorry, there's a lot here. I mean, 
No, you've done a lot. That's, story is it's really interesting. A long I'm, one. I'm kind of curious how yeah. it's come from Peruvian store to brand management to restructuring and now to where you are today, Amazon. Like, what, what were the steps? How did it lead from there to there? Yeah, it was always opportunistic. Someone saw something, whether ourselves or someone outside of us, and said, well, this is awesome. We should apply it to this. Right. So it starts off with <clears throat> how do I take what I learned in medical cells and how I was able to scale something. And I did that with the alarm cells too. I took when I was doing the alarm cells, it, that's where it all started is we, instead of selling door to door, we sold in Sam's club. We were like, set up, let's set up a booth in Sam's club. See if we can sell alarms to people instead of walking around in the heat of Puerto Rico. That's where I sold. <clears throat> let's try something different. And we were selling as well in Sam's Club. Well, there's nine Sam's Clubs in Puerto Rico. And so I set up a team and I scaled it. And I said, hey, knocking doors to sell alarms is one idea, but what if we do it in Sam's Club? And you can sell just as much and you don't have to walk around and knock on doors. And so this idea I had in my head of scaling something, then I applied, you know, after college and doing this alarm sales thing, then I applied it to medical sales. I said, okay, how do we have a better idea, better way of selling? And then how do we scale it? And then, okay, I started training the rest of the, the company. And then, and then I took that idea and thought, my, my friend calls me from Peru. and said, you've got a great idea. This should be scaled. So we went and we scaled it, or we started, <laughs> started to scale it. And then in that process, I learned something new besides the scaling idea. I learned the marketing, I didn't know anything about marketing, but I learned all these crazy successes we had in marketing. I thought, okay, we can take that and apply that to businesses. And we did that. And then we said, and then our investor was watching us and saying, you know, this is kind of cool what you guys are doing. And I saw what you did in Peru. Like that's the impressive part of what you guys did. Let's apply it to, let's apply it internally because marketing is just, helping people exhibit behaviors you want them to behavior after communicating something. And so we then thought, okay, you've got, um, for example, Abbott laboratories did lots of projects for them. They were restructuring their whole sales team and how everything functioned. And it was like, okay, how do you get your salespeople to be okay with all these changes, the territories and changes you're making or, or Lowe's, we restructured the whole company of Lowe's from, from the CEO down with a whole new strategy and everybody's job is changing. How do you apply marketing internally to changes that the, the, the executives are trying to sell to their people um, when it affects their jobs, their roles, how they've worked, their muscle memory around what they do every day. And so we applied those same marketing principles that we learned in Peru, that we formulated into tools and methodologies in our branding firm we changed them into internal tools and it became a really big success. And so I, I guess what, what you see that's a common thread is you find one principle, one idea, one concept that you're good at and that you understand and you find different ways to apply it that maybe it hasn't been applied in or businesses. And so then how do we get to, how do we get to um, Amazon? Well, I had a high school buddy that was doing Amazon on the side in his, house at night and again it's like my buddy in Peru I'm like you're making how much doing it how many hours a week and he was just selling products that he'd created I said we can scale this we just have to take what you're doing and do more of it and then applying some of those principles now I learned about by this point I had restructured Cisco Abbott uh, Genentech Biogen major <clears throat> Um, uh, Lowe's, uh, American Family Insurance, major companies. We'd applied these principles at the C-suite level, and I'd learned a little bit now about business, which I'd never had before. I knew a lot more about business in general. And I was like, okay, there's this scalability, and everything I've learned about creating, uh, about running businesses and business strategy now, after doing that for 10 years, you know, for about 10 years. Yeah. Um, we can apply this. I'm, I am sure we can make this 
successful. And so we went from him making $100,000 a year um, over the next you know, four years to a $40 million a year business. And it's not that, again, it's principles. Everybody in whatever job you're in, you learn principles. You learn things that work and don't work. And it's the ability to apply those and take risks in new situations that, um, that that's what I was doing. And again, I, I clearly, as you can hear, I, I wasn't successful most of the time. I mean, it, success is interesting. We were very successful at certain things and we always found a way to keep food on the table. And sometimes I made a lot of money and sometimes we were at one point we were on food stamps in all this craziness. And so I went from, you know, right out of college making 200,000 plus a year to having nothing to making that again, to having nothing. Hmm. And that's never bothered me. Most people I know, it, it drives you a little mad. And so I, again, it, it's not that everyone should be that way. Again, most people, my wife, again, it's lucky I have the wife I do, or we probably would have been divorced five times. But, but for me, that was always the fun of it. It wasn't about the money. The money was a measure, but that, the roller coaster of it is kind of the fun. And again, not, not that that's a good model to follow or that everyone should learn from that. But I always thought in my head, you know, what's the worst that can happen? I don't, you know, if I keep my head about me, the worst that can happen is we go back down to zero. And I felt what that was like after the proof thing pretty quick. I thought, well, that's not that bad. I mean, it stunk. It was stressful. It was bad in a lot of ways. But it wasn't like, it wasn't like, oh, no, we, we can't eat out as much. Oh, it was it was embarrassing. It was hard to be on food stamps for my wife, and that was that was a short-lived thing. But I mean, it was all hard, but it was all you know, it's all good, right? We're here on Earth to to go through hard stuff so that we can build our character muscles. We have to have weight put on to grow, and so a lot of that I would never want to have happen again. But at the same time, I don't know. It's like there's an AJR song that says "A hundred bad days." makes a hundred good stories. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they make you interesting. You get a lot. Of, I like that. Song. Yeah. They make you just neat parties. Yeah. It's like, so that's kind of just been, I guess how I've lived life. And again, there's, there's been times where we've done really well and times where we're broke and, you know, so it's, it's just been an adventure. That's interesting, Adam, because the fear of losing is what, stops most people from doing their own thing. The fear of losing all of that and going through the downtimes is typically what stops most people from leaving. Yeah. And, and that's where you, that's, that's where whenever I was with someone that had a good idea, again, I'm not the entrepreneur, but I'm the guy that says, Oh, come on, let's do this. Here's the plan. Here's how it will work. And it never goes according to plan. Never, ever, ever. Even when I've gotten more and more conservative in my planning, it still seems to not hit plan, but, but I know there's a way. And I, and I just really believe if, if anybody works hard at anything is honest along the way and sticks with it long enough, they'll figure it out. This Amazon business did not start out anything like what it looks like now. And we knew that going into it, but it is so different than it started. We started sourcing our own products. We were going to, we partnered with, um, uh, some other partners of ours that were good at getting into, into big box retail. And we were, our model was totally different, but what you have to be is you have to be flexible and you have to be willing to adjust and go where the momentum is. And if you're too rigid, you're going to, you better have the right idea right out of the gate, which most people don't. If you're too rigid, you're not going to make it. And if you're afraid of losing, yeah, you just, you just can't be because I don't know. And, and that's hard. That's really hard. And it's, it's been hard for some of my partners too. Um, so if you're that way, find someone who's not that can, that can push you a little and be like, it'll, it'll be okay. The, the worst case scenario is it's really not that bad. Usually we're scared of things that aren't true. We're scared of things that are never going to happen. 
And then when they do happen, they're not nearly as bad. The fear of it for a year was worse than it actually happening. Right. Yeah, I bet. I bet. So yeah. We- yeah. Well, um, one thing that I, I remember you saying at the start is if you make a plan and you, then you follow through with that plan, I remember when you said that, I thought, gosh, plans change so much. And so it's good to come full circle on that to say, look, you know, plans are good. And I think it's more of a commitment level to a certain, you know, direction is what you, you know, we're intending to say, look, I, I'm going to commit to this direction. And then that direction may, you know, change courses here and there, but that's my commitment level. Is that kind of what you were referring to going back? Well, at that point, I naively actually believed that I could build a plan, execute it, and it would actually work out. But no, since then, experience has taught me (laughs) that that the plans don't often work out, even if they're really well thought out, because we don't have total control of our ecosystem that we're in. And and there are things we don't know even as much. We can do all the research in the world, and there's things that we're going to miss and things we don't know. And we can minimize risk, which I wasn't good at because I didn't care about risk. Um, We can certainly minimize risk and make plans better, but but I still, but I think the point you made is true, which is if you have a viable plan and it it makes sense, and and you gotta be careful because some people believe some crazy things. I've had people put things in front of me like, how do you see this working? Like this, if you build it, they will come mentality is one of the biggest problems in entrepreneurship. Um, If I build something cool, then it will just sell itself. And and so you got to have some smart people check your plan. But I still believe if you have that plan and it's viable, things are going to change along the way. But you'll find a path to get to where you're going, even if it's not the exact plan you set out. And even if it takes five times longer, which it will, it's, it's there. But, but I would say to anyone trying to do something is uh, that's one of the biggest mistakes you run into because I've worked with a lot of entrepreneurs and we've, we've done things with other entrepreneurs and it's this idea that if I have a good idea or a good product that it will sell, I'll take a good channel over a good product any day. So if you go back to the medical device, a really smart business for me to start would be I've got this network across the nation of doctors that are willing to listen to us weekly. What else could I sell them? That's a much more viable business idea than I've got a product I want to sell to doctors, but I have no doctors. Right. And so in a, in a startup or an entrepreneurial world, the channel is more important than the product. And I can't stress that enough. That's one of the reasons I did this Amazon thing is the, um, they'd figure my partner had figured out the channel, which was Amazon. Yeah. That was just, how do we find, products that can do what his products did how do we scale it that way i thought and again it's it's now yeah sorry you can go you can continue but but it's now evolved to what we're finding is we're finding now companies that need to do what we've done with his products in that channel but we know the channel we know how to sell in it now it's about finding the the companies that need the same thing that we did for ourselves. Yeah. One thing going back a little bit, and this, this is all really incredible knowledge and wisdom and experience. And so thank you so much for sharing everything you have so far. I remember. So in my college degree, I laugh at myself and most people laugh at me because I did entrepreneurial management as a degree, which Okay. Kind of hear hear the smile in Adam's voice. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, it's, (laughs) it's not super valuable, right? Because, but, but one thing we did a bunch of and it drove me nuts was business plans because, you know, everybody when they're starting or it seems like you get the sense that, well, you have to have a good business plan. You have to have a good business plan. You have to have, and we would spend so long crafting these business plans and it's good to do the research. It's good to lay out monies and financing and have a plan, but man, those plans, those business plans get thrown out on day one for the most part and the things that I've been involved in, because, you know, it's not as if when you're making decisions, you go back and you adjust your business plan and then you, you know, adjust all the dominoes that are supposed to go off of that. You, you adjust, uh, you know, for me, at least I would, do on course adjustments 
And, you know, the business plan that was in the past, but I would, I always hated spending so long doing these business plans that I would throw out on the first day. And so being so rigid to those always bugged me. Well, and what I found is it's going through, it's like a lot of things in life. It's going through the process of creating the plan. Right. Yeah. It opens your eyes to everything you need to keep your eyes on. And, and then I actually think, and I'm no Warren Buffett, like I'm not the guy that, you know, I, I haven't, I haven't had the most success in the world. I'm not the guy to listen to on this, but, but, but my experience is that it's the lack of going back and adjusting that plan that kills people because you need a plan. And at the very least, you need a clear, you have to have a clear where we're going next and how we're going to get there. And the elements of the plan may change or it may become more simple, but I do that constantly. And that's part of what I learned as I was consulting these big Fortune 100 companies and working with their leaders is in order to keep all energy going in the same direction and everyone on the same page, especially if you're dealing with tens of thousands of employees, of employees. And even when you're dealing with 10, which is what we've got in our little business, you have to have a plan and everyone has to be going in the same direction and it will take different forms, but that's a, that's a big mistake. Big companies made, I won't name the company, but I was a really a fortune, a $60 billion company. And I remember sitting with leadership team saying, you don't do annual planning. How are you this big and have been around for a hundred years and you don't do strategic planning? Um, now this may make a case that it's not important, but once we implemented <laughs> it and did it, it was like everything ran so much smoother. Um, so anyway, you, you can get by without it and there's huge companies you get into them. You're like, there's broken things in all of them, like that are like unbelievable. You wouldn't do in your own company. But, um, but the point is, is they typically, they know their model, they know where they're going and the lack of planning creates a lot of headaches and costs that they don't need, but you definitely have to have some idea to keep everyone aligned on, on where you're going and, and how you're going to get there. Right. That's awesome. Um, you've imparted a bunch of wisdom that we would have come back and asked. <laughs> and so you've covered a lot of it throughout, which is so great. A lot of the times we, we ask, what would you have done differently or what, what advice would you give younger Adam coming out of college? And it seems like you kind of sprinkled those in and sewed those in throughout the, the, the meeting, but would you add to any of that? Um, one thing I, I stress and I wish I'd known is you need a longer runway than you ever think. Um, if you're going to start a business, you need a year, at least probably two worth of, okay. And, and there's people that have broken this rule and I don't want to limit people, but a very smart thing to do is have a year or two worth of savings set aside before you, you go crazy and there's ways to do it on the side. Um, but I feel like you just need a longer runway than you ever think you need. And I tended to run out of runway early on. Um, the other thing I, I would say is um, to a younger Adam is don't be optimistic. Don't, don't expect things to happen so fast and then get frustrated when they don't. Um, any one of those ideas, had I stuck with them longer, uh, you know, I said I stuck with the crew thing as long as possible, but, but again, that was the runway principle. There's kind of both of those. Uh, if I'd stuck with any one of the early ideas and there were other businesses sprinkled in there that were kind of random, like just try something randomly. I believe if I'd stuck with any of those, I would have, they would have become successful. So it took me a long time to find something that worked. And it, it's because there's a bit of ADD and a bit of serial entrepreneur in there where you're bouncing. And there was even a little bit of pride in that. Like, 
this idea of, oh, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I don't even see that as a good thing anymore. I think that's like a bad, like not a good thing. Um, and, and so this, this tendency that a lot of people that are in this space have to bounce constantly, um, that's the thing that gets them into being an entrepreneur is almost the biggest danger is just be ready for a long, hard five, 10 years. And don't look around you at other businesses that pop up at two or three or four or five and be like, hey, why is that not happening to me? There's just, what, no matter what you do, there's a, you're going to invest and pay the price one way or another. And I think I was too quick to bounce um, from one I did to the next. I don't know. That's a good question. I haven't thought about it much. I probably should think about it a lot. That was good more. feedback. No, that was good. That's a good thing. And I think a lot of that's a theme we see with a lot of people is that they go through ups and downs, but sticking with it often is more important than a lot of things. So, but Adam, we really appreciate you having on having you on here. It's been great. Thanks, you, Adam. Really amazing story, and really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Are we? We're recording still. I'm going to stop recording.